Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 1st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I don't believe it's May already, but it is. Can't hold the clock back. Yahweh, God be willing. Melissa and I will be taking a long drive north towards the end of this month. We plan on leaving northwest Florida and both driving through and stopping over in northeast Georgia, eastern Tennessee, western Virginia, eastern Pennsylvania, and then heading west to northwest Ohio along routes, Interstate 76 and 80, where we plan on seeing Clifton Emma Heiser. From there, we will drive south to Alexandria, Kentucky, and hopefully visit the Fellowship of God's Covenant People and Pastors Elmore and Downey and their families. I have no plans as of yet for the last leg of this trip that we're planning, upon which we shall return to Florida. We expect to be gone, perhaps as long as three weeks. If anyone living near any of those places would like to see us along our way for coffee, for a beer, for, for lunch, whatever, please send us an email via org. Later in the year, we hope to make a much longer trip west through the southern part of the country. I hope to keep the program <laughs> schedule on the road, of course, as, as is my habit to do, but perhaps it will be slightly reduced. I want to talk before I begin tonight about the purpose of these Friday evening podcasts at Christagenia, because evidently some people, or at least some people that listen at least occasionally and, and are detractors or some people who are skeptics just don't get it. So I want to say a few words about our purposes here in these Friday night presentations. As far as, as far as I am aware, there is no expository and exegetical biblical commentary that has ever been produced for our Christian identity faith. Of course, there's a lot of topical works on various subjects, biblical subjects that relate to our faith. But an expository commentary is a verse-by-verse commentary of Scripture, which deals with the meaning of each particular passage. And an exegetical commentary examines the meaning of each passage in its original language and context. These are different in nature than the typical topical type of commentary. Therefore, this is our primary purpose here on Friday Nights to produce a Christian identity Bible commentary, which is both expository and exegetical in nature. The texts of each of these presentations are placed on our website at Christagenia 
along with these recordings. They are both fully searchable and freely accessible to all. Eventually, Yahweh God be willing, we hope to edit those texts for publication in books, an endeavor which by itself shall take many months to complete, probably several months to complete each such book. In that process, we also at the same time hope to improve upon our commentaries, improve upon our translations. In fact, tonight, in this very presentation, we will have to explain why we have chosen to emend a particular passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So we always seek to improve ourselves. Therefore, we are aspiring to build a complete verse-by-verse -verse proof that Israel identity Christianity, which we at times also describe as covenant theology, is the only true Christianity. It is the only truth that shall ever be available to our white Adamic race, and that is fully supported by a thorough investigation of the entire of the entire scripture and that's what we've embarked on in these programs working on this endeavor since presenting the gospel of matthew in mid 2011 i believe that we embarked on that in april of 2011 we are perhaps a little more than two-thirds through the new testament and of course we've taken a lot of time out to do the same thing for several of the minor prophets in the interim. When we complete those parts of the New Testament written by Paul, we hope to make a new presentation of Christrike, which is what we call our commentary on the Revelation. And we hope to expand on that. And then we shall complete a commentary on the writings of the Apostle John. During and after the completion of those things, we hope to offer new commentaries on the four major prophets. There are many good and informative Bible commentaries available, where many things are found which give insight into certain aspects of Scripture and are probably wanting in our own commentaries, because no man can know everything. However, they all had the wrong perspective on Scripture. They have all embraced so many false doctrines because they claim to the mistaken beliefs that the Jews are Israel or that Europeans are foreigners to ancient Israelites rather than actually being descended in whole or in part from the ancient Israelites. So those commentaries are all ignorant of Israel identity. They're all ignorant of the truth. So we believe that these commentaries, which we offer at Christiania, are without precedent, at least within Christian identity, concerning the combination of historic, linguistic, and interpretive understanding of Scripture, which they provide. 
However, in making these commentaries, we have alienated at least as many supposed identity Christians as those who have expressed an appreciation of our work. Many are found opposed to our work, where in this instance, using the pronoun our, I believe I could spoke I can speak for Clifton Emmaheiser as well as myself. Many are found to be opposed to our work simply because they are comfortable. They cling to the paradigms of the past. So they cling to fallacies such as the sixth and eighth day creation interpretation. They cling to that, not because it's true, because they are comfortable with it. They can't defend it. Or they cling to the silly idea that Yahweh created other races of men in the beast category of Genesis 125. Rather than seeing the truth that the, we have exposited here time and time again, that the other races are beasts simply because they are corruptions of Yahweh's creation. They are corruptions of man. And these same fools that want to imagine these other races to be beasts in Genesis, these same fools try to make them men in the Revelation. Imagine that. That's a Canaanite bait and switch. That's what they do. They offer you the $25 TV in the ad in the newspaper. When you get to the store, they don't have any. They're out of stock, but they'll sell you a $75 TV. And people are, have their minds and hearts set on getting this TV, so they buy the $75 TV, which is really a cheap piece of crap. So they get robbed of their money. That's what these fools that sell you beasts in Genesis and make men out of them in the Revelation. That's what they're doing to you. They're just Jews pulling a bait and switch act. I saw that on Canal Street when I was 12. So they cling to these fallacies because they're comfortable with them. Clinging to these old paradigms, they seek to be pleasers of men because they can explain the existence of other races and why they should accommodate people of those races while at the same time trying to exclude them from some future and mystical utopia in the sky. Those who cling to these things are disconnected from the realities of Scripture and of life, and they are mere pleasers of men. This is where we believe that we are different from all of our detractors, for we do not seek to be pleasers of men. The many so-called identity Christians... who cling to these old paradigms and who attack those who seek to move forward to a new and better foundation are a disgrace. They all have private agendas and they are a disgrace to our profession. 
This is also where we are different from our detractors. That our full profession of the faith, as it is documented in these presentations, is recorded not only in the spoken word, but also in writing. The greater number of our detractors do not do that. Because being pleasers of men, in that manner, when tomorrow comes, they can deny what they said yesterday after they are proven today to be liars. However, even with our profession of the faith being fully documented at Christogenia, the greater number of our detractors make only personal attacks against us rather than accurately taking our words and writing out the proofs required if we are to be corrected. On a few occasions that they do such a thing, they take our words out of context so that they can make straw man arguments and the disputations they post are often even anonymous and laced with personal attacks. They are known by their fruits. As it says in the Psalms, in a psalm that we shall read again further on this evening, the good man shall not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. In spite of these clowns, we shall continue in our endeavors, and, Yahweh willing, we shall see them to completion. Christian identity is the truth, but with many different layers of understanding among identity Christians, much of that truth is often still presented alongside many lies. And then the private agendas of many frauds exacerbates that situation. We must eliminate the lies and move forward. We must advance. Christian identity, scholarship. And it may be hated, but it must be found as irreproachable as man can make it. We have to dot our I's, cross our T's, and prove the foundations of our faith. We must be persistent in study and improve ourselves, improve our message, and improve the delivery of our message. Therefore, those who cling to the false paradigms of the past shall be ultimately left behind. With that, we will start our presentation. The Epistles of Paul, 2 Corinthians, Part 9. And I believe that this, um, this presentation should be subtitled, Fulfilling Obedience. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians, Chapter 8, Paul turned his conversation from a rather expansive explanation of the gospel of reconciliation, which he covered for seven chapters, to discuss the collection which he had undertaken for the poor in Jerusalem, 
in which he had assurances that the Corinthians would participate. The apparent need for such a collection was never discussed. However, that such a need indeed existed can indeed be determined from history in the records of Josephus and from the book of Acts. We see in Acts chapters 4 and 5 that the apostles had founded an independent and self-sufficient Christian community. However, we see in Acts chapters 6 and 7 that their community was almost immediately scattered and persecuted, and that the apostles were being oppressed. When Paul had made his first trip to Antioch, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15, as he had explained in his epistle to the Galatians, that was 14 years after his conversion to Christ on the road to Damascus. And we have established in our commentary on Acts chapter 9 that the year was either 48 or 49 A.D. As Paul seems to explain in Galatians chapter 2, this is where his promise to remember the poor had originally been made. Since the records in Acts and in what remains of Paul's epistles are quite incomplete, we can only piece together parts of some of these things, as there is no complete record of any of them. Paul had made a subsequent visit to Jerusalem and to Antioch in perhaps 52 or 53 AD, which is recorded in Acts chapter 18, in verses 18 to 23. Whether Paul had brought any gifts to the poor of the saints in these places at that time cannot be determined, as the description of that journey is very concise, and there are few records in the epistles. Now it is early 57 AD, and Paul continues in his endeavor to fulfill his promise which was originally made in 48 or 49, as many as nine years earlier. In Acts chapter 24, after his arrest in the latter part of 57 AD, he is quoted as having said to Felix, Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. However, the description, after many years, does not, with any certainty, exclude the possibility that Paul, Paul had brought alms to Jerusalem in the visit of 52 or 53 AD, as well as in 57. From the histories of Josephus, it may be determined that the Sadducees, the party from which members of certain families had rather consistently held the high priesthood throughout this period, had operated as a sort of organized crime ring. Throughout this very time, they had frequently taken a law into their own hands, making false accusations and having people executed as they pleased. They were also organized against the priests and had been taking their tithes for themselves to the point where the priests were starved to death. And Josephus explains that rather explicitly.
Christians were also being persecuted by the Sadducees at this very time, just as it is also often recorded in the book of Acts that Christians were being persecuted throughout the Greco-Roman Oikumene. Only a few years later, perhaps around 62 AD, and only two years after Paul had been sent to Rome, immediately after the death of Festus, the Apostle James and his companions were put to death by those same Sadducees who had wanted to kill Paul. All of these things are explained in Josephus' Antiquities in Book 20. Much of this had been discussed here earlier in our presentation of Acts Chapter 4, which was done in June of 2013. And in that presentation, we actually quoted lengthy segments of that chapter of Josephus in regards to the same thing. Being persecuted in this manner, under the circumstances described by Josephus, it would be impossible for the Christians of Judea to even work in, in order to support themselves. Therefore, Paul's gifts and more would be required from Christians elsewhere for their sustenance. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, even so has Yahweh ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In chapter 8 of this epistle, in his intercourse with the Corinthians concerning these things, we see that Paul put his concern for the poor in Jerusalem ahead of even his concern for himself, asking nothing of the Corinthians for his own benefit, but only that they contribute to the gift to the poor in Jerusalem. In this ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul continues the same discussion. Certainly, it is superfluous for me to write you concerning the service which is for the saints. I know your readiness, which concerning you I boast of to the Macedonians, because Achaia had been prepared a year ago, and that of your zeal the greater amount is provoked. Paul had already written concerning this service, so here he characterizes his exhortations as an unnecessary reinforcement of something which is already being done, which is in itself a tactic whereby Paul is actually offering encouragement to his readers. Corinth was a Roman province, uh, I'm sorry, Corinth was in the Roman province of Achaia, which is actually a name for certain parts of the Peloponnesus that date all the way back to the poetry of Homer. The Romans used that term somewhat more widely. They used it to describe a province which covered all of the Peloponnesus along with a large portion of mainland Greece and even parts of ancient Thessaly, which are part of the Greek world. Paul had said at the end of his first epistle to the Corinthians 
Now concerning the collection that is for the saints, just as I had prescribed to the assemblies of Galatia, in that manner also you should do, and skipping to verse 3 of chapter 16, and when I have arrived, whomever you may approve, I will send them with the instructions to have your kindness carried off to Jerusalem. And if perhaps it would be sufficient for me also to make the conveyance, they shall go across along with me. Now I will come to you whenever I shall have passed through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. That first epistle to the Corinthians was written about a year before this epistle was written. In the early months of 57 AD, the first epistle to the Corinthians was written before the Pentecost of 56 AD. Paul is not yet aware of the extent of any gift which the Corinthians had collected for the saints, but he must have had some sort of pledge from them, and he is now presuming that they have it already prepared. He says in verse 3 here, Now I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting concerning you would not be made empty in this respect, that just as I had been saying, you would be preparing. Where Paul says, I have sent the brethren, he intends Titus and the unnamed brother who had been chosen by the Corinthians to deliver their gift to Jerusalem on their behalf. Where that brother is described in chapter 8 of this epistle, we had speculated that he may have been that Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, whom Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16, which we, may, which we believe may be the best and the only plausible conjecture, but it is a conjecture, as to the identity of this person. In any case, Titus must have brought this other individual to meet Paul in the Coplas. And then Paul, as he describes here, sends them both, both back to Corinth with this letter. Therefore, here, at this point, as Paul writes this verse, he has not sent them as of yet, but delivering this letter after he completed it, they would be present when it was finally read by the Corinthians. So that's a, having sent the brethren, now I have sent the brethren, is referring to those who delivered this epistle. It's a literary device. From Paul's statements here, it is evident that he had encouraged the generosity of the Macedonians in the collections for the saints by informing them of what was being done in Corinth in regards to that collection. So he talks about his boast in that regard. Here in chapter 8 of this epistle, Paul had in turn encouraged the Corinthians by informing them of the sincerity and abundance of the gift of the Macedonians. Ostensibly, Paul does this in order to encourage each of these assemblies to make sacrifices for the benefit of Christian communion. In verse 4, he says, Lest perhaps, if Macedonians should come with me, 
and they find you unprepared, we would be disgraced. We, in which case, I do not say you in this matter. And Paul did bring Macedonians with him. That's evident from the um, list of people who are with Paul when the epistle to the Romans is written and who are with Paul in the Troad, in the book of Acts chapter 20, while it is written. Paul clarified himself here in a parenthetical statement where he says we would be disgraced. He makes a parenthetical statement that says we, in which case I do not say you. He clarified himself in that statement to assure the Corinthians that they themselves would not be disgraced if they failed to execute their part of the endeavor, but that because he had boasted to the Macedonians concerning them, only he, where he says we on behalf of himself and of Timothy as well, this letter is being written, as it says in its opening verses, from Paul and Timothy. So only Paul and Timothy would be disgraced because Paul had boasted of the Corinthians to the Macedonians. That's not the fault of the Corinthians. The Greek word hupostasis is literally translated as matter here. The end of this verse. The word is a noun, although the King James Version somehow treats it as an adjective and gives it a rather dubious meaning where it has confident. The majority text which for the most part the King James Version had followed, appends the words of boasting to the end of the verse. None of the, none of the ancient manuscripts contained those words. It seems that the scribes had taken a liberty in order to clarify Paul's intent. In this case, it does clarify Paul's words and does no harm. But that doesn't give license to scribal liberties. Many scribal liberties do do harm when scribes try to interpret the word of God by adding to the text. Well, that does create problems. Verse 5 to Corinthians chapter 9. Therefore, I have regarded it necessary to summon the brethren in order that they would go to you in advance and put in order beforehand your previously announced blessing, this to be ready as a blessing and not just as an advantage. Titus would be included among the brethren which Paul intends here. He summoned Titus, as he has told us before, as we see in the epistle to Titus. And Paul also seemed to indicate in chapter 8 of this epistle that Titus was given primary responsibility for this task, the task of putting the collections in order for their transport to Jerusalem. However, it is apparent that when Paul writes the Corinthians concerning these things, he also intends the inclusion of other Christian assemblies 
in Akahia as well. Since in verse 2, Paul says that Akahia, not only Corinth, but the entire province, Akahia had been prepared a year ago. So there is apparently more to Paul's having summoned the brethren and the task assigned to Titus than what is apparent here on the surface of Paul's words. Corinth was only one prominent city in a province which also included Athens and Sparta, among many other lesser but notable ancient Greek cities. However, from the context of these epistles, Corinth does seem to be the spiritual center of these assemblies of Christians throughout Akahia. The evidence to that is where Paul opened this very epistle by addressing it to the assembly of Yahweh, which is in Corinth, with all of the saints who are in the whole of Akahia. We see in um, some of Paul's other epistles, this, this is off the top of my head, I believe it's the epistle that's esteemed to be to the Ephesians, and I say esteemed for reasons that I will, I will discuss at length when we present our commentary on Ephesians. In Ephesians, I'm pretty sure it's Ephesians. It might be Colossians, so I might be wrong. But in one of those epistles, Paul makes the statement that they are to read an epistle, a now lost epistle, that he had sent to the Laodicians, Laodiceans, as many would pronounce it. That the, um, he also stated that the Laodiceans should be permitted to read the epistle that he had written to them. So Paul is expecting these various Christian assemblies who are in proximity to one another to exchange copies of his epistles so that the greater number of Christian assemblies are edified by his words and are aware of what he has to say. So I would not doubt if when the Corinthians received an epistle from Paul that they made copies of it and sent, it, sent those copies out to all of the smaller Christian communities in diverse places around them. And, and I'm certain that that did happen. And, and for that reason, that's why the epistles that we have had actually survived the test, the, the test of time. Now this, verse 6, now this, he who is sowing sparingly, sparingly then shall he reap. And he who is sowing by blessings, by blessings then shall he reap. Each one just as he purposes in the heart, not from out of grief or from out of necessity. In other words, you don't give what you cannot part with. For Yahweh would love a cheerful giver. Paul is teaching in this regard. Paul's teaching in this regard is in accordance with the words of Joshua Christ as they appear in Matthew chapter six, from verse one. Christ says, 
Now offer your righteousness not to do before men, for them to behold. Yet otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in the heavens. Therefore, when you should do an act of charity, you should not trumpet it before you, even as the hypocrites do in the assembly halls and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But upon your doing an act of charity, your left hand must not know what your right hand does, that your act of charity would be in secret, and your Father who sees you would repay you in secret. Now the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, have the end of that verse to read and your father who sees in secret would repay you openly. That's another addition to the King James Version, which is not in any of the ancient manuscripts. If you do your acts of charity in secret, Yahweh will repay you in secret. However, Paul is not requiring to the Corinthians that they give to the poor liberally, as the King James Version wrongly translates the Greek word haplotes, but only that they give sincerely, which is the actual meaning of the word. However, Christians should also consider this, holding back when one has enough wealth to give more is not sincerity. Paul never demanded tithes, but Christian communion should be esteemed is greater than tithes. And certainly it is. From Proverbs chapter 11, from the Septuagint, from verse 23, all the desire of the righteous is good, but the hope of the ungodly shall perish. There are some who scatter their own and make it more, and there are some also who gather yet have less meaning there are some who are very giving and their wealth increases. And there are some who only gather, gather, who only work at gathering rather than at giving, yet have less. Every sincere soul is blessed, but a passionate man is not graceful. May he that hoards corn leave it to the nation, but blessing be on the head of him that gives it. He that devises good counsel seeks good favor. But as for him that seeks after evil, evil shall overtake him. He that trusts in wealth shall fall, but he that helps righteous men shall rise. And of course, the reward we seek is not of this world. Christians should not seek worldly rewards. Worldly rewards should not be considered an impetus for charity. Christ himself explained this as it is recorded in three of the Gospels. Here from Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So the treasure we seek is not a worldly treasure. Where Paul says at the end of verse 7, For Yahweh would love a cheerful giver 
as we have it in the Christogenian New Testament, he actually seems to be quoting a verse of Proverbs, which is not found in those versions that are based upon the Masoretic text. From Proverbs 22, verse 8 in the Septuagint, and we will read a slightly larger section. We'll read the entire verse. He that sows wickedness shall reap troubles and shall fully receive the punishment of his deeds. God loves a cheerful and liberal man, but a man shall fully prove the folly of his works. And those words, a man, are added to the text that should say, God loves a cheerful and liberal man, but shall fully prove the folly of his works. The word which Brenton translates as liberal, and that's probably probably after the tradition of the King James Version, I wouldn't doubt, is actually a noun which describes a giver. God loves a cheerful man, and a giver is the way it should be translated. The phrase being a parallelism, and a cheerful man himself, is a giver. Paul has paraphrased it well. Verse 9 of the same chapter of Proverbs says, He that has a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And able is Yahweh to make abundant every favor for you, in order that in everything at all times, Having all self-sufficiently, you may have the advantage in every good deed. Paul is really only teaching things in the Proverbs. We pray that we have abundance so that we ourselves may be self-sufficient. And then, in turn, with our excess, we may help the needy from among our brethren. Therefore, where the word of Yahweh says in Deuteronomy 8.18, that thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers. We see that with our wealth, we also have an obligation to our kinsmen. Fulfilling that obligation, we have advantage in every good deed, which stores up for us treasure in heaven which are the unseen rewards in which every Christian should have an expectation. Verse 9, just as it is written, he has dispensed, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remains for the age or forever. Here Paul quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9, in reference to Christ, it is the Christian challenge for those of Israel to follow after Christ by imitating him. We shall read the entire psalm from Psalm 112, from the King James. Praise ye Yahweh. Blessed is the man that fears Yahweh, that delights greatly in his commandments. His his seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. 
A good man shows favor and lands. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now he who is supplying besides seed to he who is sowing also wheat bread for food. He will supply and he will multiply your sowing. And he will increase the produce of your justice or righteousness. In every way, being enriched with all sincerity, which through us, meaning both Paul and his readers, accomplishes gratitude to Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh God is supplying seed to the sower. And in addition to that seed, he is also providing to the sower bread for his own food. The language is difficult, but our version literally translates every word of the Greek. The King James Version has bountifulness for the word haplotes in verse 11, a word which means sincerity, which we have discussed at length when we first encountered it in verse 2 of chapter 8 of this epistle. When we are blessed in our sustenance and our goods, we should give the credit and praise to Yahweh our God. When we in turn are able to provide for needy brethren with our excess, we should do the same. Wealth is a gift from God like any other gift, and all of our gifts should be used towards the edification of the body of Christ. From Isaiah chapter 55, for as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So we see what Paul was paraphrasing here in verse 10. Verse 12, because the service of this ministry, meaning the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, is not only its replenishing of the deficiencies of the saints, but also its having abundance through many thanksgivings to Yahweh. The Greek word for service here is diakonia, which is usually ministry in the King James Version. The Greek word for ministry here is liturgia, Strong's number 3009 which is often transliterated as liturgy. The word liturgia, according to Liddell and Scott, originally described a public service performed for the general good at one's own cost. The Roman Catholic Church later p 
pilfered this word for its own advantage. The Roman Catholic Church does nothing for the public and everything for itself at the public's cost. They've got liturgia turned around 180 degrees. The poor of the saints in Jerusalem are here for an example, that the service to the poor was for the good of the entire body of Christ, and it should be a matter of service in all ages for Christians to see to that same thing among their own needy brethren. Through this, the many would be thankful to God. Paul continues in verse 13. Through the proof of this service, honoring Yahweh, upon the submission of your agreement to the good message of the anointed and sincerity of the partnership for them and for all. You know, at one point in the gospel, Christ says, you will always have the poor with you. And that is true. But that doesn't make it right. We will always have the poor with us, but that's a reproach to us. Yahweh God is honored when Christians perform good deeds for their fellows, devoting one's life to the betterment of one's Israelite kinsmen is submission to the gospel of Christ because he had given his life in that same manner. Christians demonstrate the sincerity of their profession, and they demonstrate their own obedience to Christ through the good works that they do for their Christian brethren, which is the sincerity of their partnership, as we have it here, or communion. The Greek word koinonia, Strong's number 2842, which Liddell and Scott define as meaning communion, association, partnership, or fellowship, is translated here as partnership in order to emphasize what true Christian communion really is, that all Israelite Christians should be bound to fellowship with one another in a joint endeavor to build the kingdom of God. That's yet another word that the Catholic Church pilfered for itself and perverted the meaning of. The King James Version has distribution here for the word koinonia which may be the purpose of the fellowship in this context, that the gift of the assemblies be distributed to the poor of Jerusalem, but it is not an accurate meaning of the word. And that version also has liberal, liberal distribution. And liberal, which is an adjective, is how they translated the noun, haplotes, which means sincerity. So where the King James Version has liberal distribution, they're basically just scamming you. It's sincerity of the partnership. The word haplotes does not properly mean liberal. And the King James Version is translation. Translation is dishonest. Verse 14, 
and in their entreaty for you, yearning for you for the sake of the favor of Yahweh, overflowing upon you. The partnership is fulfilled when the recipients of the gifts of the assemblies offer their own thanks to Yahweh God in return for those gifts. As once they are sustained, they can offer their prayers and gratitude in exchange for his mercy, which has been effected throughout the assemblies. As Paul of Tarsus, in the first seven chapters of this epistle, had used the problems within the assembly at Corinth to demonstrate many of the wonderful aspects of the gospel of reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh their God. Here, Paul is using the example of his collection for the poor in Jerusalem as a means to describe how the kingdom of God should function in the practice of love and true care for one another among Christians. Paul says, now gratitude to Yahweh, now thanks be to God, for his indescribable gift. The body of Christ, when it functions in accordance with the law of God, is indeed an indescribable gift to each and every member. This concludes chapter 9, and we shall proceed with chapter 10 of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Now I, myself, Paul, exhort you by the gentleness and fairness of the anointed, who concerning stature am humble among you, but being absent am bold towards you. With the Greek word prosopon appears in context such as this, it should improve our understanding of what is meant where similar terms appear in the often misunderstood phrases such as respective persons or respecter of persons, such as one may find in Romans 2.11, for instance, where the King James Version says, for there is no respect of persons with God. If scripture is interpreted correctly, such a sentence cannot be used to discredit the fact that Yahweh has chosen Israel exclusively and that the new covenant was made explicitly with the same ancient Israelites and their descendants that the old covenant was made with, as his word states explicitly in so many other places. Here the word prosopon is stature, where the King James Version has person. But with this, we should see what person is. And it is appearance in verse 7 here in this same chapter, both in the Christogenian New Testament and in the King James Version. So that word appearance in verse 7 in the King James is the same word it translates as person here. So it's not talking about the inner individual 
and the substance of that individual. The word prosopon describes the appearance or the presence or the status of an individual. And it does not at all describe the substance of the individual. In James chapter 2, the related word, compound word, prosopolampsia, which comes from prosopon and another verb, meaning to receive, was used to refer to the different appearance or status of wealthy Israelites as opposed to poor Israelites. In Romans chapter 2, Paul used that same word to refer to the difference between the circumcised Israelites of the remnant in Judea who kept the law. Their status was different as opposed to the uncircumcised Israelites of the ancient dispersions of Israel who had become pagans and had forsaken the law and their status was different. The word has everything to do with the status of a person, with his appearance, not his substance. There's a difference. Both of those groups in James, the wealthy and the poor, they're both Israelites. James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Both of those groups in Paul, the Roman pagans, and the remnant in Judea are Israelites. Paul is writing to the nations descended from Abraham's seed, Romans chapter 4. So the word has everything to do with the appearance or the status or the stature of the person. It has nothing to do with the substance of the person. That is an important difference, which, of course, the Judeo-Christians, the mainstream denominational sects that are universalists in nature, use to take advantage of our ignorance. Here Paul uses the word prosopon of his own stature to describe himself as he is in appearance in person, as opposed to the boldness of his words in his epistles, he's a humble man in person. None of these passages have anything to do with race, not in James, not in Romans 2, and not here. None of these passages have anything to do with whether one is or is not under the covenants, which is another matter entirely and which is addressed by many other passages in Scripture. When we read Romans 2, we should read Romans 4, and taking it in context, understand that all those people Paul's talking about are Israelites who are under the covenants. The same thing with James chapter 2, and the same thing here. Prosopon has everything to do with the status of a person and nothing to do with the substance of the person. God indeed discriminates based upon the substance of a person. But I want, not being present, verse 2, 
to be bold with the confidence with which I reckon to be daring towards certain others who are reckoning us as walking in accordance with the flesh. And this translation of this verse has been revised from the original Christogenia New Testament translations. The King James Version has verse 2 here to read, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. The King James Version will address that first and the problems with that translation. Then we will address the reasons why I changed the Christogenia New Testament in regard to this verse. And, of course, it's not published yet, but it is published today online. This is, there are certain other things on the shelf, too, that I intend on either defending, amending, or addressing concerning my translations that I will get to in the course of these presentations. The King James Version has this verse to read, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence at the beginning of the verse anyway. And that version strips the word paron. The word paron is, an, is a participle which means being present, to be present. The King James Version strips paron of its negative particle, which is may, which means not. Properly in Greek, the negative particle negates the word or phrase which it precedes. And therefore, the negative particle here must belong to the participle verb paron. But the King James Version applies the negative particle to the verb which follows instead. And that verb is tharesahi, which means to be bold. This is peculiar, and it's an incorrect reading which many other translators have since followed. But the verb tharesahi, which they have, to which they have errantly applied the negative particle, was also misread in the King James Version. So before going on to discuss that verb, it must be said that there are versions which correctly apply the negative particle in this verse. Those versions are the American Standard Version, the English Revised Version, the Weymouth Bible, and the World English Bible. So we are not alone in our attempt to correct the King James Version here in this instance. As to the verb tharesahi, which means to be bold. It's a form of a, of a verb, tharseo, Strong's number 2293. This verb is read here in the King James Version and in most other versions. We check them today. In the first person. Later in the verse, there's another verb, palmesahi the same grammatical form of a different verb, which means to bear. And that is read in the King James Version correctly as an infinitive. Now that sahi ending, the S-A-I ending, which is at the end of each of these verbs, that ending is found in verbs of the second person 
payerist terms of the medium or passive voices, or as an aorist infinitive. But it's never found in the first person, as the King James Version has translated sare sahi here. This verb form is found again in 2 Corinthians 13.7 in the verb poie sahi, the same ending. So it's the same tense, basically. Which is rendered in the King, King James Version in the second person in the second person plural, as ye do, or you do. Most popular translations, except Weymouth, also, trans- also followed the King James Version in that mistake. Here, and, and it's not really a mistake, but it's... It, it's um, It's not a perfect translation of the tense of the verb, let's put it that way. Here I had initially read both Sare Sahi and Tome Sahi in the second person, in my original translation. And that is technically correct. But the King James Version rendering of Poye Sahi in 2 Corinthians 13.7 which is also wrong, helped me, it helped lead me to believe that the verb form may belong to the second person plural. That's how the King James Version translates that same form at 2 Corinthians 13.7. Now, not to make excuses for myself, but there were scant resources available when I had originally translated Paul's epistles. However, now I have learned that these verb forms may belong to either the infinitive or to the second person singular, not the second person plural. So that was an error that I had followed in my original translation of Paul's epistles. Therefore, although the original translation of the Christogenian New Testament for this verse may be technically correct in English, where the number of the pronoun, you, is ambiguous. The singular verb does not truly fit the context of the passage. I'm sorry, this sounds complicated. And therefore, realizing that the words must be translated as infinitives because the singular second person is correct, but it doesn't really fit the context, I have emended the translation and have put it on the, on the version on the Christogenia website. Nevertheless, Paul has consistently used himself as an example in his epistles. And if he should be bold in his defense of the faith, then all Christians should be bold in that same manner. Verse 3, indeed, walking in the flesh, we do not serve in accordance with flesh, for the arms of our warfare are not fleshly, but through Yahweh they are able to destroy strongholds, destroying reasonings and every bulwark, raising itself up against the knowledge of Yahweh and taking captive every thought 
into the obedience of the anointed. The word logismos here in the plural being translated as reasonings may have been translated as arguments in this context, which is an alternative meaning of the word. As Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ sent me not to immerse, but to announce the good message, not in wisdom of speech, that the cross of Christ be left empty. For the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. That's an important verse. But to those who are being preserved, to us, it is the power of Yahweh. Indeed, it is written, I will destroy the coming of the shrewd, and the understanding of the sagacious I will set aside. Where is the cunning? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Did Yahweh not make foolish the wisdom of the society? Since indeed, in the wisdom of Yahweh, the society does not know Yahweh through wisdom. Yahweh has been pleased by the folly of the proclamation to preserve those that are believing. Then since Judeans demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified to Judeans, indeed a trap, and to heathens folly. But to those that called, both Judeans and Greeks, anointed of Yahweh power and of Yahweh wisdom, seeing that the folly of Yahweh is wiser than mankind and the weakness of Yahweh is stronger than mankind. With this, we should see that the word of God in the scripture is the arms of our warfare, but that we do not employ those arms against the enemies of God because, as Paul said here, the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. Taking captive every thought, we seek to win the minds of our brethren over to Christ, because as Paul also says, Yahweh has been pleased by the folly of the proclamation to preserve those that are believing. As Paul also admonished the Romans in chapter 12 of his epistle to them, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here in 2 Corinthians, we see these seemingly disparate ideas coalesce, that making our own lives and well-being the substance of our Christian communion for the benefit of our brethren, our good conduct is our living sacrifice and our service to God. Paul used the example of the collection for the poor in Jerusalem to illustrate the very idea here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Doing this to illustrate the very idea that our lives should become a living sacrifice for our brethren. 
doing this. According to Paul in Romans chapter 12, we transform our minds and conform ourselves to Christ. That is the fulfillment of our obedience, of which Paul speaks in the balance of the statement where he says in the verse which follows, also being in readiness to avenge all disobedience whenever you shall have fulfilled your obedience. We read in 2 Chronicles 7.14, everybody can know this verse. Everybody should. It's on signs all around the country, but the Judeo-Christians have no clue as to what it means, even though they like to quote it. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The wicked are not going to be eradicated from this world until the children of Israel who remain decide to turn to obedience in Christ. There is no other alternative. The Apostle Jude speaks of the avenging of disobedience in his short epistle, where he says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, meaning of the infiltrators and the corruptors of society, behold, Yahweh cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convict all that are godly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This prophecy which is found which Jude himself found in Enoch, is indubitably related to that which is found in Micah chapter 4, where it says, Arise and fresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. This prophecy is also related to that of the fall of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, where the following announcement that Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, is fallen. We're following that announcement. We read, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And then the, point, the part where our point lies. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her according, double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, filled to her double. These are three clear prophecies that Yahweh God shall employ the children of Israel in the destruction of the wicked, Jude, Micah, and the Revelation. However, as Paul illustrates here, before the children of Israel can be of any use to their God in that endeavor, they must 
first fulfill their own obedience. As Paul has illustrated in Romans chapter 12, and more pragmatically here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that includes the conversion of one's own personal interests into the living dedication of one's life as an ongoing sacrifice for one's brethren. The Apostle John had taught this same thing in chapter 3 of his first epistle, where he had written that by this are manifest the children of Yahweh and the children of the false accuser, or the devil. All who are not bringing about justice, all who are not performing righteousness, are not from of God. And he not loving his brother, because this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was from off the wicked one, and slaughtered his brother, and with delight he slaughtered him because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. Do not wonder, brethren, if society hates you. We know that we have passed over from out of death into life because we love the brethren. He not loving abides in death. Each hating his brother is a murderer. And you know that any murderer does not have eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he has laid down his life on our behalf, and we are obliged to lay down our lives on behalf of the brethren. Now, who would have the substance of society? Here's the point, right? Now, who would have the substance of this world and should see his brother having need and shuts off his affections from him? How does the love of Yahweh abide in him? Children, we should not love in word or with the tongue, but in deeds and in truth. Here, Paul teaches that same thing, that in order for Christians to be worthy to partake in the avenging of disobedience, they must first put Christianity into practice and fulfill their own obedience. Crying out, concerning the enemies of God is not sufficient in itself if one does not demonstrate Christian love for the people of God. That concludes our presentation for this evening. I will be here tomorrow night. Classical Records and German Origins, Part 6. Who are the English? Because one of the most repulsive teachings I've seen in, well, Christian identity, but this is really British Israel and, and Herbert Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God, is the idea that the English are somehow distinct from the Germans. That's crazy. That's just plain stupid. But it was also a few kikes and a political agenda behind those teachings, which came out of um, British Israel in the late 19th century. 
Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. And good night.